Well, why don't we take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We want to pick up where we left off last week and our series on Satan, exposing him for who he is, a murderer and a liar, said our Lord Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 44. Your response has been tremendously encouraging over the past week to our series that we began last Sunday morning and last Sunday evening. We'll be continuing that today and then two Lord's Days from now as we look into the life of Job and that second ancient scheme that Satan brought upon the world population. And then concluding that evening with a message from the book of Revelation that will unfold Satan's last fling and the very end of Satan's career in rebelling against God on planet Earth. In my reading this week, I came across an article by Paul Harvey. It's entitled, If I Were the Devil. And Paul Harvey says this, If I were the prince of darkness, I would want to engulf the whole earth in darkness. I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I would not be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. So I should set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I would begin with a campaign of whisper. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I'd whisper that what is good is bad and what is good is square. In the ears of the young, I would whisper that work is debasing and that cocktail parties are good. And to the old, I would teach to pray to say after me, our Father, which art in Washington. Then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors on how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. And I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions and let those run wild. I'd designate an atheist to front for me before the highest courts, and I'd get preachers to say, she's right. With flattery and promises of power, I would get the courts to vote against God in favor of pornography. And thus, I would evict God from the courthouse, from the schoolhouse, and then from the House of Congress. In his own churches, I'd substitute psychology for religion. That way, men would become smart enough to control everything. If I were Satan, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg, and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want it until I had killed all incentive for ambition. And then my police state would force everybody back to work. I would separate families, putting children in unicamps. If I were Satan, I'd just keep on doing what I'm doing, and the whole world would go to hell as sure as the devil. Paul Harvey has some tremendous insights into the mind of Satan, for it is true that Satan is continuing to do today the very things that he began to do in the Garden of Eden. We began there last week in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, to begin to expose and unmask that diabolical character called the devil. And you'll remember that I suggested that Satan had four major objectives to accomplish in the life of a believer to alienate him from useful service in the cause of the king and his kingdom. Number one was to distort or deny the truth of God's word. If somehow God can, or Satan rather, can separate you and me from the truth of God's Word, then we have no real direction and no real anchor in life. But I would rather suppose for those of us that worship at Grace Church, that would be a very difficult thing to do. And settled and firm in our belief that the Word of God is both true and trustworthy, Satan would then attempt to discredit our own testimony. That is, cause us to hold allegiance to that that God teaches while behaving differently and have the unbelieving world around us point the finger and say, hypocrite, 
If that's what Christianity is like, I want nothing of Christ. Perhaps you're firm in the Word, and your life is being lived for the glory of God, and if that's true, you're to be highly commended, bringing honor to God. But Satan would attempt to come in the back door by destroying your enthusiasm for God's work. And that is developing the mentality, while I believe the Word, and I want to live for His glory, I'm just not sure I want to get involved in a local church. I'm a loner. I'm not a groupie. And churches aren't for me. And besides, why do they need me at Grace Church anyways? Such a big church and there's so much talent. I'll just kind of sit in the far recesses, out of sight, and worship God on my own. Satan would love nothing more than to cause that mindset in order that you might not function in the body and thus the body would lack and not have the strength it could have if you were in it. But perhaps none of that is true. You're clinging tenaciously to the Word of God. You're living a life that's holy. and You're excited about being involved in God's local church, wherever that might be. Satan would then attempt to very subtly dilute the effectiveness or the influence of what it is you and I involve ourselves in. And by that I mean he would cause us to be very energetic and active, but not in those areas that God has commanded to further the advance of the kingdom, but in those things that are secondary, those things that have to do with churchianity, but have nothing to do with the cause of the kingdom and Christianity is taught in the Word of God. And if he could accomplish any one of those or any combination of those, then he has effectively neutralized the impact that God can have through you and me in a world that now is filled with darkness that needed, needs penetrated by the light of Jesus Christ and the message he came to give. And to accomplish all of that, Satan is diligently attempting to invade your mind and my mind. He's attempting to cause us to think contrary to the Word of God, and in so thinking, we might become disobedient to the Word of God, and thus lose our effectiveness, and thus lose our testimony for the cause of Christ. And in a very, very real sense, the battle that Satan fights with God's people today is a battle for our minds. In Ephesians 6.11, Paul wrote that we were to put on the full armor of God in order that we might stand firm against the wiles or the methods of Satan. And those methods are many, multitude, and can come in various forms. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2.11, Paul warned the church to be aware and to not be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. And the word that's used there is not the word used in Ephesians 6, but it's a word that means a mindset. That that Satan would have you and I to think so that we would become and thus walk in a way that would be outside of his will. And Paul says there that we're to do that in order that Satan might not take advantage of you and me. And I hope that there's nobody here this morning that's doubting the reality of Satan, nor doubting the fact that whoever you are, from wherever you've come, that Satan's great delight in life would be to take advantage of you in order that the effectiveness that you might have for the kingdom would be minimized. And it all began in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. And you remember last week as we began in that passage, it all started with one who came disguised. One who came so he would not be recognized for who he was. And it says in Genesis 3.1 that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so disguised and so innocent appearing, Eve was ready to listen to what he had to say. And thus he planted at the end of verse 1 a seed of doubt that would go to bear a blossom that would ultimately poison the entire human race. Satan responded and said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
The Hebrew grammar there demands that we understand that not as a question of research, seeking to know out of ignorance, but rather a question designed to ridicule the very statement that God had made. And once that seed of doubt was planted, in a sense, the battle was all over because the momentum had been gained. Satan had divided Eve away from her husband and came upon her unawares and by herself in the garden. He had divided to conquer. It had not been scheduled. It was totally unexpected. She was caught unawares and off balance. Satan made a very, very innocent-sounding, however sinister, inquiry, appearing to be a friend in need, when in fact his prime design was to lead Eve astray and cause her to join him in his rebellion against Almighty God. Eve entered into dialogue with this apparent religionist who just wanted to know more about God. We find it in verses 2 and 3. For the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said... You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And like all theological dialogue or so-called dialogue of the day in which we live, where two parties who are oceans apart in their thinking come together, there is a great minimizing and watering down of the strength and the authority and the effectiveness of what it is that God has said. And so it was with Eve as she dialogued with Satan. She reduced or minimized the authority of God, for the text tells us in chapter 2 that God had commanded with the very authority of the Creator, while Eve merely reported that God has said. It's just a, a statement of the fact of what He said, whether it's true or not, whether it's authoritative or whether it's not. She obscured the freedom of God's grace, for God had said, eat freely, and eat freely of every tree. Well, of course, one exception. But all Eve could tell in her little dialogue with Satan was God said to eat of any tree. She ignored the immediacy of personal judgment. For God said, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Eve merely reported it to Satan as a possibility. Lest lest we die, we're not real sure it will be today. And maybe we're not real sure it will ever be. And then she really questioned the certainty of God's judgment and the way in which she reported what God had said. Maybe there will be judgment for sin. But on the other hand, maybe there won't. And it was that wide open door to the mind of Eve that Satan came with full acceleration in verse 5, verse 4 and 5. For the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's where we left off last week. We had come to that point and I had just introduced the five lies that are contained in verses 4 and 5. I want to pick those up this morning and expand upon them and demonstrate to us this morning how Satan has lifted those very lies from the garden and is today in new dress, broadcasting those very lies to the country, to the world, to the globe on which we live. Lie number one, you'll remember, was this. Eve, you will not die, and thus there is no consequence for your sin of disobeying God. If we were to read verse 4 in the Greek text, we would discover that the negative particle is the very first word in that sentence. And it ought to be read like this. No! It is not true that you shall surely die. In the very strongest and blatant way, Satan called God a liar. He didn't know what he was talking about. He was mistaken. And those things, he said, surely won't come to pass. Well, I'm sure in Eve's mind, she might have been wondering, what in the world is this death that God is talking about? And what all does it involve? 
And perhaps she had not had it fully explained yet in the revelation of God or instruction by Adam, but you and I are not left to our own mental devices to understand what it was about which God talked. For the concept of death in both the Old and the New Testament is that of separation. And in the progress of death, there are three stages through which the human race passes and through which Adam and Eve, against the denials of Satan, would surely pass. And stage number one is that that I would call immediate. Involving themselves in sin, they would be alienated or separated from a personal fellowship with God which they now enjoyed. That would lead to the intermediate stage or the second stage, which would be what we call physical death or separation of our body from our immaterial part. Our immaterial part to the ground and our immaterial part either to heaven or Sheol, Hades, the waiting place for final judgment for those that have rejected Christ and His message. But then there's the ultimate stage. Revelation 20 and 21 call it the second death. And it's that separation from the presence and the glory of God forever. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 And in attacking the mind of Eve, Satan did not give her a discourse on death or what stage God was talking about or what stages she would pass through once she initiated the sin. And when we get down to verse 7, we'll see just how very, very true it was what God had reported to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Well, that lie has been perpetrated throughout all of time. In Psalm 10, verse 13, the wicked has said that they've spurned God because they do not believe that God will judge or require retribution or visit their sins upon them. But Hebrews 9, 27 says it very clearly. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And make no mistake about it, death for the human race is certain, and so is judgment. It's taught from the beginning of the Bible until the end. And those of you that have joined us on Sunday night for John's great series in Romans have, uh, with me, been impressed over and over and over again with the seriousness and the soberness of sin and its effect upon the human race and the utter certainty that one day God, true to His righteous nature, would deal with it in the lives of people who have rejected the gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, there are many religionists today who also deny the reality and the sting of death. They would be from the cult of spiritism, those who would be attempting that age-old art of contacting those who have left this life through seances and other demonic deeds. It's called the cult of antiquity because it's based on the very lie that Satan spoke in the garden in verse 4. In 1848, it found its resurgence in the United States, in the state of New York, in a little burg called Hydesville. Kate and Margaret Fox bought the lie and attempted from there to raise up the movement to contact the dead. And on their cottage, they put this little plaque, and it reads, There is no death, and there are no dead. The wicked have bought the lie. Religionists have bought the lie. And scientists have bought the lie. The current movement in America of thanatologists, best known Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Dr. Raymond Moody, who teaches at the University of Virginia, all promoting the idea that death is not really as it's portrayed in the Word of God. It's not so awful. There is no pain, and there is no consequence to sin. Now, I had read some of their writings and been impressed with their wrongness, but it never had it so vividly impressed upon me how horrible it was till my wife and I, several months ago, walked uh, over to the Northridge Fashion Mall down to the center, we saw there were lots of people and some displays, and discovered a display that was sponsored by the Continuum Foundation, which is headquartered here in Los Angeles, and it was extolling the virtues of death, and how painless and how pleasurable it was. 
And it was an unbelievable amalgamation of statements from all of the world religion and anybody famous who had ever spoken on the subject of death. The exhibit had been in our L.A. Museum of Science and Industry for two years before it went public and out into the populace to paint death as something that was inevitably pleasurable and merely one step in many steps that would lead to your ultimate fulfillment or ultimate consciousness. And as I looked at that, and as I read the statements, the only thing that could go through my mind was its old error in new dress, but its old error nonetheless. And on one of the displays, Dr. Kubler-Ross had this written, and I quote, You are here for a very special purpose which is yours alone. If you live well, you will never have to worry about dying. For I'm convinced that there is life after death, for death does not really exist. And for them, death is not the end of something, but merely the beginning and a continual progress of growing and becoming. They had some artwork there. One medieval painter had pictured life as people merely moving from one point to another through a pipe, through a tunnel, through a travel way through which we just walk and in a very wonderful, pleasurable way. And Satan, I'm sure, was standing on the outskirts, clapping and cheering and saying, Amen. For if he can cause people to believe that there's no sting and death, and there's no consequence to sin, then in their mind there's no need for a Savior, and Christianity has utterly nothing to do with me, and I do not need to bow down and worship the King of kings, the Creator, and the One who rules the world. It began in the garden, and it's in the very midst of our existence and the time in which you and I live. That's lie number one. There is no death and thus no consequence to sin. Lie number two, by inference from what it was that the serpent said to the woman, God had said, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, you will not die. And by those very words is saying that God's word is untrue and thus unreliable. And in so doing, not only attack the word of God, but attack the very nature of God. For his word and his nature are inseparable. Titus 1-2 says this, God cannot lie. And Hebrews 6-18 amplifies, it says it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus said in John 17-17 of God and his word, Thy word is truth. Psalm 31-5 says that God is a God of truth. And then Psalm 119, that great, great psalm that extols the truthfulness of the Word of God. In verse 142 says, Thy law is truth. In verse 160 puts it all together and says that the sum of thy word is truth. Make no mistake about it, the Word of God from beginning to end claims without contradiction that it's true and that it's trustworthy. It contains all that believers in Christ need to be equipped to do every good work that God would lay at our feet. You might be asking, why make such a big deal out of the lie? Why should we worry about it in the day in which we live? Well, just this. Satan is persistent. and He will fight the battle over and over again no matter how many times he's lost in the past. The beginning of this century, the great theological battle that has given shape to the religious world as you and I see it today, came out of the battle between the modernist who questioned the Word of God and its supernaturalness versus the fundamentalist, those who, like you and me, upholded the authority of the Word of God. That battle was fought. Reams of literature were written that answered every objection. The decline of the major denominations in the 60s was a result of it. The battle was lost by the modernists for all practical purposes. And yet, in the last 10 years, a new wave has arisen. In March of this year, 
over 50 scholars from all around America will gather in San Diego at the International Congress on Biblical Inerrancy to once again reaffirm the authority and the truthfulness of the Word of God. And you say, well, why do they gather? Except San Diego is such a neat city. Maybe they just wanted to come together and have a little fun and fling down there. The reason they come together is because there is a new wave across America in the midst of what we would call evangelical churches of people who are subtly planting the same seeds of doubt that Satan planted in the garden. This couldn't be true because I question whether that's right. No one has yet proven conclusive to the mind of man. And so go the arguments. There have been battles in the past, and there are battles ahead, and quite frankly, we find ourselves right in the midst of it, and John is right out in front. He's going to be one of the fellows that goes to San Diego to uphold the absolute integrity and authority of the Word of God. Where did it have its beginning? In the garden, when Satan said to Eve, God is absolutely wrong. One writer pictured it this way, and I loved his language. He said, I paused last eve beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring, the vespers chime, and looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers, worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, he answered. And then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. But though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unchanged, but all the hammers are gone. Men have come, men have gone to their grave. The Bible stands today as pure, as authoritative, and as trustworthy as the very moment in which the Spirit of God gave it to men of God to record for you and me. Lie number one, you will not die, and thus there's no consequence for sin. Lie number two, God is certainly wrong. Lie number three we find in verse five. Satan says this, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And you might ask the question, what's so wrong with the statement that Satan made? For in fact, Dick, God affirmed it. And we probably ought to look at it in chapter 3, verse 22. After the fall of man, and after God had cursed the serpent, Adam and Eve, in the world, he said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What's the lie? The lie is this, that what Satan told Eve, insofar as he told it, was true, but he did not tell her all of the truth, and he did not tell her the implications of the truth that he had given unto her. The truth was, you will become like God in one aspect namely seeing good and evil. The truth that he did not tell her was that Adam and Eve were not divine. They were not eternal beings, and thus they were not unchangeably and immutably holy. While God could not be tempted by evil when he looked upon it, when Adam and Eve had the eyes of their mind open and could see evil, they could be tempted and succumb to the pull of that sin and thus act on it in disobedience to the Word of God and fall into sin. That was the subtlety of the half-lie that Satan gave to Eve. It's much like the uh, quartermaster I read about several weeks ago who was busily doing his business on the ship, had been faithful for 20 years, and uh, one night in a fit of madness, he went out on the town, had too much to drink, and came back in an inebriated state. And so the captain wrote in the log of the ship, the first mate was drunk on such and such a day. First mate went to the captain and said, Sir, it's the only time in 20 years. Could we not strike it from the log? And the captain said, There's no way we can do it. 
because it's true, and we'll leave it there. And they put out to sea. And the first day out, the quartermaster who was keeping the log wrote in, on this certain day, the captain was sober. And when the captain saw it, he asked the quartermaster if he could not strike it from the log. And when the quartermaster said, why, sir? He said, because people will perceive that soberness is not the ordinary character of my life. And the quartermaster looked him in the eye and said, but it's true. Aha. And the same wrong conclusions that we could draw from a quartermaster who once was drunk or a captain who apparently once was sober were the very wrong conclusions that Satan wanted Eve to get and to come to from the things that he was saying. And he was incredibly, incredibly successful in doing that. The ultimate effect of what it was that Satan was telling Eve at that point was really humanizing God and deifying man. And that is that man, through a progression of stages, could become like God. And perhaps Eve could think, if that was true, maybe that's how God came to be the way He was. And today that very, very devilish error is being taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, or better known as the Mormon Church. It's an insidious lie that totally contradicts the Word of God. Let me read from some of their writings. And I'm quoting from the prophet Joseph Smith as reported by one of his descendants, Joseph Fielding Smith, writing in the Journal of Discourses. And Joseph Smith wrote, and I quote, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. His successor, Brigham Young, wrote, and I quote, When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his celestial wives, with him. He is our father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. Lorenzo Snow, former president of the Mormon Church, said, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. And Dorson Hyde, writing again in the Journal of Discourses, says this, Remember that God, our Heavenly Father, was perhaps once a child and mortal like we are, and rose step by step in the scale of progress, in the school of advancement, has moved forward and overcome until he's arrived at the point where he now is. Where did they get this? The mind of Satan is first given to Eve in the garden, that in eating thereof, you will become like God. An insidious half-truth that led them into disobedience. Line number four is this, that God wishes to jealously maintain His uniqueness and is not protecting your sinlessness, Eve, but rather maintaining the uniqueness of His deity and of His divinity. Or put another way, God is cheating you, Eve, out of the pleasures that you could have if you would but eat of that tree and see not only good, but also eat of evil. And in our world today, it bears the cry of unfair. I have my rights. The choice is mine. This week I got a letter from someone who was here last week, and they shared a little bit of God's work in their life. But there was one particular portion I wanted to share with you. They wrote and said this, as they had very valiantly fought against the habit and had broken it several weeks ago, and said, but that was not the extent of his warfare. He's not ceased to try and convince me that God was cheating me by forcing me to stop. Conversations took place in my mind, such as the one Eve had with the serpent in Genesis 3. All of a sudden, you were no longer speaking to 3,500 sisters and brothers in Christ, but the words you spoke seemed to be directed at me. Well, it's letters like that that let us know how wonderful the Lord Jesus Christ is and the Spirit of God and applying the Word of God, because quite frankly, I might have spent all of a millisecond last week making that particular point as we just barely got to verse 4 and 5. But she really got the point, and she really could see the battle she fought in her mind. Satan saying, God is trying to cheat you out of this particular pleasure, when in fact, 
God is merely trying to prevent us from that that would be pleasurable for a moment, but would have long-term, if not eternal, consequences in our life. Well, Eve is about hooked, and Satan gives her the total grand conclusion of all he said with lie number five. That is, Eve, in light of our dialogue and the things that I've said and the way you've understood God to say the things that he said, I, Satan, have your best interest at heart. Therefore, believe me and don't believe God. And I think you can begin to see the tension that she was in. Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there even today. Is God really believable? And should I entrust my entire eternal being to the Word of God and its very specific and authoritative teaching? Or should, in fact, I pursue my own desires and those questions and doubts that the world and all of the religious systems around me are raising? Well, that mindset we find today in almost all of the leaders of what you and I would call cults, imitations of Christianity, but not true Christianity. It was exactly what Jim Jones and the People's Church tried to bring upon his people who died so unnecessarily. It's the very same thing that Sun Mung Moon is attempting to do through his Unification Church, David Berg through the Children of God, Herbert Armstrong through the Worldwide Church of God, and Victor Paul Werewill through the Way International. And they are merely a handful of illustrations that we could use today, but men who are basically saying the very thing that Satan said to Eve. I have your best interest at heart. Don't listen to what has been taught historically throughout all of Orthodox Christianity. Quite frankly, it's the big daddy mentality. It's I and I alone know the truth, and you follow me regardless of whether it takes you in the path of where the Word of God would lead you. The Way International, perhaps, is the most clever counterfeit of Christianity available in the United States today. Its leader is Victor Paul Werewill. Its headquarters is back in the state of Ohio. And Dr. Wellwill was reported as saying this, God spoke to me audibly, just like I'm talking to you now. He said he would teach me the word as it has not been known since the first century if I would teach it to others. What a claim. God spoke to me directly, says Dr. Werewill, and said that I would know the truth of God as no man has known it for 1,900 years if you'll only faithfully teach it to people. Let me go on to tell you what it is he teaches. And that that I'm about to read comes from the book that he wrote several years ago entitled, Jesus Christ is Not God. And I quote, In other words, I say that Jesus Christ is not God, but the Son of God. They are not co-eternal, without beginning or end, and co-equal. Jesus Christ was not literally with God in the beginning. Neither does He have all the assets of God. Those who teach that Jesus Christ is God and God is Jesus Christ will never stand approved in rightly dividing God's Word. For there's only one God, and thou shalt have no other gods. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ was a man conceived by the Holy Spirit, whose life was without blemish and without spot, a lamb from the flock, thereby being the perfect sacrifice. So, Victor Paul Werewolf, who says that God has spoken to him as God has spoken to no man in 1,900 years, and we need to follow him with blasphemous statements that contradict and are counter to everything that Orthodox Christianity has taught for the last 2,000 years, and that that's over and over again taught in the Word of God. The thing that makes him most insidious is that through a guise of scholarship, he attempts to prove all of that from the Bible, apart from human reason. By the way, I do not recommend the book. You can just forget about it and go get something else that's good. Go buy a Bible, read all about it. Well, those are the lies. And with it, Satan has put Eve in a great dilemma. Is God right or is Satan right? They both can't be right. And which way should I go? She's caught in the clutches of the danger that Romans 125 talks about, 
when it says they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And Eve at this point is asking the question, maybe I do have a choice. Maybe there is a preference. Maybe there is an alternative lifestyle to this very narrow, straight-laced way that God has given me to walk. And so in order to make a decision, in verse 6, she entered into a deliberation with her own mind. And in so doing, brought God and the Word of God apparently down to her own level and made her mind the judge of God and His Word. That is absolutely deadly every time we will do it. Let's see how she did it in verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. It's really the beginning of what's been labeled the modern scientific method. And that as I will empirically gather research through the senses that God has given me, and then through the mind that God has given me, try to determine what's true and what's false. And first experiment she ran on the tree was for physical value. And she found it, boy, it's really good for food. Well, now maybe this tree's not as bad as God cracks it up to be. Because God certainly wants me to eat and be satisfied and to be healthy. And then came experiment number two. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And it was the test for emotional value. It looks good. It's aesthetically pleasing. And it makes me feel good all over. Well, God wouldn't want me to feel bad. And God would not want my aesthetic senses not fully pleased, would He? And then she thought, and I'm sure she thought back to chapter 2, verse 9, which says that out of the ground God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. Every tree in the garden could have provided her with those two delights, food and that that would be pleasing to her. And thus she launches into her third and what proved to be the conclusive experiment. And that was she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. She was testing it for its intellectual value. And if it would bring that kind of value, even her own mind would ultimately deem it right to eat from the tree and right to disobey God. But just before we look at that for our own edification, let me pose a question. Where does real wisdom come from? If you and I find ourselves in the straits of life, inadequate and unequipped for what life has brought, unable to deal with it, where should you and I go? And where should we seek? And to whom should we look? And I would suggest that the Word of God says there are three steps that we ought to take. Number one is to go straight to the Word of God. Psalm 19.7 says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And wisdom does come from the Word of God, and it does not come from looking outside of the Word to some other book or to some other person than Almighty God. Secondly, Wisdom comes from the fear of God, from having a right relationship, from living in a total experience of worship with God. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so we first go to the Word of God to meet Him, and in meeting Him and understanding who He is, we bow down in the fear of the Lord to worship Him. And then thirdly, wisdom comes through prayer. Asking God for that that He alone possesses and that that you and I are in desperate need of. James 1.5 says that any of us lack wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given unto him. Big warning I would issue to me first to you second. And that is true wisdom never comes from experimenting with evil 
or from elevating the mind of man to be equal with God, or from consulting anybody or any other piece of literature outside of the Word of God. That is wisdom in its ultimate sense of eternity and where life itself is going. But Eve did not heed that warning. And thus, we see as verse 6 comes to a close, her dialogue with Satan, her deliberation upon the choices led her into disobedience. Look at what it says. It says that she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Sad day for the human race. For we all are in sin. We all are alienated from God. Apart from receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior, apart from the penalty for our sins being paid by Him. And thus, I suppose, men, we can puff up our chest and say it was all Eve's fault, right? Wrong. Deflate, lose it all. Because you know what the Word of God says? The Word of God says that Eve was deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. But Adam was disobedient. For he had received the word of God directly from God and was without excuse in totality and was also responsible for leading his wife in the way of God. Quite frankly, in the midst of all of this, Adam abdicated his leadership in the home and the disaster that ensued was a natural consequence. Romans 5.12 says this, it says, through one man, doesn't say through one woman, but through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And it was exactly as God had promised in chapter 2 when he said and commanded, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam was disobedient, abdicated the leadership in his home. Eve was deceived. And when that cleavage in the marriage had been totally broken and they were no longer one flesh, Satan was able to accomplish that that he desired to accomplish. And that was to alienate both Adam and Eve from an eternal relationship with God, and thus begin the progress of the three stages of death. Well, quite frankly, the whole battle was in the mind of Eve. We see it in verse 6. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and would make one wise, the Hebrew word ra'ah and its construction carries with it the idea of carefully examining, meditating, and coming to some kind of cognitive conclusion. And it was not a quickie experiment in the presence of Satan that we see in verse 6, but was some time later in the experience of Eve, perhaps hours later as she pondered and looked at that tree and finally came to her own conclusions, and thus she and her husband were led into sin. But all of that to lead us to the things I want to say in the next couple of minutes. And it took us two hours to get here. I'm not sure every message takes two hours to get to its point. But if you get nothing else, don't miss the next things that I want to share with you. Because it's what God would have you and I to see that in the combat that we'll certainly do with Satan in our lives, we might be the victor and unlike Eve might overcome Satan. And all of the various pieces and methods that Satan brought together to bring her to the point to answer the question, is God right or is Satan right? He had infiltrated her mind with this thought. Attractiveness, desirability, and utility have replaced truth as my benchmark or my standard for determining God's best in my life. Let me give it to you one more time. Attractiveness desirability, and utility have replaced God's truth 
as the standard or the benchmark by which I determine God's best for my life. And if it's attractive and beautiful, and it's desirable to my heart and will make me feel good, and will give me something I don't have, I can override God's Word and His prohibitions and involve myself anyways in it, and it will not bring a consequence. And it was then, when her mind was captured and she thought those thoughts that Eve took and ate and gave to Adam, and he ate also. And you ask, well, what can I do to protect myself from that particular scheme? I've entitled it Sensualism, and it has a million and one variations in the society, pleasure-seeking society in which we live, and I'll trust the Spirit of God to make those applications in your life. But the protection is the hedge around our mind that we place with the Word of God, that we not only are committed to it and to knowing it, but to obeying it day in and day out, in season and out of season, even when we don't fully understand, and even in those moments of time when you and I will have doubts. Totally committed to following God and His Word wherever it would lead. Well, Eve's disobedience led to ultimate disaster. We see it in verse 7. It said that the eyes of both of them were open and that they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Their minds had been totally affected now. And whereas before they perceived only good, now they perceive also evil. There's great guilt now, for they are hiding from God. And where they were one flesh, there is now great conflict between Adam and Eve, for they're blaming the fall upon one another. That's where disobedience led them to ultimate disaster. You and I have inherited their disaster. Make no mistake about it, sin in our lives, sin in their lives will always have an overflow into other people's lives. The consequence of our sin will never be limited to the sinner alone. And thus, I take a moment to ask a very personal question that only you can answer before Almighty God. And that's this. What so-called pleasure is Satan now applying your mind with this morning? What is it that through attractiveness and desirability and utility would be drawing you to believe that you could abandon the Word of God and thus pursue, pursue the desire of your mind and the desire of your heart and the disobedience. It's real. You and I are not immune from it. If it is not now attacking you, it will in days to come. And you need to be ready, and the victory can be won, and that victory is found in the Word of God abiding in the truth, so said Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 32. The battle, folks, is for our mind. And Satan will do all that he can in such a deceptive way that even you and I would be surprised to capture it and lead it, lead us astray from God. Let me take a moment just to summarize what we've learned as we close, and it's this, that there exists today a cosmic conflict for control of God's kingdom. It's invisible, but it's nonetheless real. And Satan, a created angelic being, morally fell through the sin of pride and is now committed to wresting control of that kingdom away from God. He has successfully led one-third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion, and in Genesis 3, we saw that Satan attempted to enlist the human race in support of his cause. In order to convert Adam and Eve from God's righteous side to his own side of evil, he attempted to alter their thinking and thus pervert their behavior. And in so doing, he used every guerrilla tactic that he knew. He divided the husband from the wife to conquer. He employed the element of surprise. He used the disguise to appear harmless. He attacked them at their point of greatest vulnerability. He practiced intimidation. He ridiculed God's word to cause doubt. 
He rejected God's word to model defection. He lied with half-truths, and he caused the human race to become God's judge. Out of it all, we see that attractiveness, desirability, and utility tug strongly at them and would tug strongly at you and me to tempt us to walk in the ways of the world and not that of God. But Adam and Eve were without excuse, for they could not blame it on their environment. It was perfect. They could not blame it on their heredity, for they came from God. They could not blame it on ignorance, for they had God's word. And they could not blame it on deception, for Adam knew better. We've seen that God's word is true, and it serves as a compass for direction and an anchor to protect us. We've seen that God is always true, both in blessing and in judgment. And we've seen that Satan became a mass murderer of the first degree because with premeditated purpose, he engineered the death of the entire human race, beginning with Adam and Eve. The battle's been fought through the ages. And I close with this illustration. The year is 1521. The scene is the great religious conclave known as the Diet of Worms in Germany, where Martin Luther was being tried by the Holy Roman Empire for the claims that in Christ and in Christ alone was salvation full and free through God's grace and by faith of man. And he was called with his life at stake, and he was asked two questions. One, did you write these books that they had placed before him? And number two, will you recant from what you've written. Luther came before those people. He spoke to them for two hours. And he fully admitted that all that he had written, the heritage that you and I now enjoy, were in fact authored from his pen. And when rebuked for not answering the question, will you recant of those things you've written, he responded like this. And I quote him, He said, since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one, and it's this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils, because it is as clear as the day that they frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I'm persuaded by means of the passages I've quoted, And unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract. For it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Looking around at the assembly which held his life in its hands, he concluded, Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And might I add, may you and I forever stand upon a true and trustworthy word of God, for we could do no other. And in our battle, may God help us also. Let's bow and pray together. Father, I pray that no one in this auditorium would be deceived into believing that there's not a battle ensuing right now in the heavenlies between you and Satan. I trust, Father, we understand the eternal implications that ultimately you will win and only those through faith allegiance that have followed you will rule and reign in your presence in the kingdom for all eternity. And my friend, if you've come this morning without Christ, by the very words from the lips of Jesus, he said, he who is not with me is against me. And you desperately need him. It's the only way you'll conquer Satan. It's the only way you'll have an eternal relationship with Almighty God. And He's inviting you in this very moment to submit your heart, commit your life. Believe upon Him as the God who died at Calvary for your sins, who paid the price by placing your faith in Him who arose from the grave and today sits at the right hand of the Father. And if that's your need, I would invite you right where you sit to make it your prayer. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. And in so doing, we'll take the first step of victory over Satan 
in all of his deceptive ways. If you know Christ as your Savior, my friend, the battle will be very real for your mind as it was for Eve's. And I would pray for you and pray for me that our minds would forever be guarded by the Word, that we would be anchored immovably in it. When doubts come, and when we hear denials, we would say, but by faith, I believe that God's Word is as true as God Himself is. We reconfirm, Lord, our lives to You, our commitment to the battle as we walk on the pilgrim way, that one day we might be a part of the coming eternal kingdom and might forever bow down and worship you, the true God, the one who's truly worthy of all that we could give. Father, you know our needs. Minister the word through your spirit to us that each and every one of us might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.